Hello, friends, and welcome to the PrepWell podcast. I'm your host, Phil Black. And if you have an 8th, ninth, or 10th grader with big aspirations, like the Ivy League or military service academies like West Point, ROTC, or athletic scholarships, boom, you've come to the right place. My specialty, my superpower, if you will, is preparing families for these competitive programs. I'll teach you what your child should do, when they should do it, and how you can help. So stick around and prepare to out-prepare. Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. Today, we're talking about extracurricular activities and how they can impact, for good or for bad, the strength of your child's college application two or three years down the road. And if you're new to the podcast and you have an 11th or 12th grader, the time horizon that we'll cover today, two to three years, may be a little bit too long for your child, because this podcast is primarily meant for the conscientious parents of 8th, 9th, and 10th graders who are trying to help their children do the right things now so they'll be successful later, two or three years from now, in the college admissions process. Now, I think you'll get some value from it, but not quite as much as parents who have children with a two to three year window before they apply to college. Okay, here's an overview of a few of the topics I'd like to cover. Topic number one, what counts as extracurricular activities? And by the way, in the college admissions business, we often refer to extracurricular activities as ECs. So if they, I use the term ECs, which I will a lot because it's habit, you'll know what I'm talking about. Because saying extracurricular activities every single time is a mouthful and cumbersome and annoying. Topic number two, how most families approach ECs. Spoiler alert, they collect them. Topic number three, how most families should approach ECs. Spoiler alert, they should connect them. Topic number four, how important are ECs in the admissions process anyway? Spoiler alert, very. And topic number five, how thinking about this topic now, as parents of 8th, ninth, and 10th graders, gives you an enormous leg up in the admissions process, not to mention a big reduction of stress and regret. And mind you, a lot of this is predicated on you being able to deliver this message to your child in a timely way and in a way that connects with them. Or, of course, you can let me do some of that heavy lifting by enrolling them in Prepwell Academy. If you'd like to do that, check out prepwellacademy.com. Topic number one, what counts as an extracurricular activity, as an EC. Well, as most of us know, ECs are things that your child does outside of the classroom, and there's a wide range of activities that are considered ECs. Some common ECs are sports, and band, and speech and debate, and student government, volunteering, tutoring, um, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, robotics club, basically all the school clubs, and of course, jobs, and internships, and shadow sessions, and summer camps. Um, we'll throw academic enrichment programs in there over the summer, online certification programs. You've probably heard of most of these before. Other activities that might not come to mind at first are ECs related to family responsibilities or obligations. For instance, if your child has to be home after school to look after a younger sibling or care for an elderly grandparent or run a family business, these activities are absolutely considered ECs and very important, and colleges really want to know about them. 
How about hobbies like collecting baseball cards or beekeeping or even playing video games? If your child spends enough time doing it, especially if they're part of an esports team or a gaming league, what about travel? Sometimes travel can be presented as an EC in some cases. Probably not if we're talking about vacations, but some students do significant travel during high school, during the summer, and during the year. Basically, anything that your child does outside of the classroom, within reason, can be considered an EC. Topic number two, how most families normally approach ECs. Well, in general, most families, and by that I mean the student and the parents, they begin high school in ninth grade with a mindset of collecting ECs, as if they're tokens or awards. How many ECs can they participate in? And they often do so haphazardly, without much of a plan in mind. After all, it's only ninth grade. There's plenty of time. And on this note, if you haven't listened to a previous episode called The Golden Years, please go back and listen to that. That's all about the importance of ninth and tenth grade. Students often take a shotgun approach to ECs. They join the chess club because of a friend. They join the robotics club because it meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays, which are their free days. Or they get involved in Spanish club because it only meets once a month and it seems pretty easy. Now, none of these are necessarily bad reasons to join an EC at first blush. But these ECs, over time, if approached without a plan, often lack an overarching theme or a vision or what I call a backbone that holds them all together. I like to think of this as the difference between collecting ECs and connecting ECs. Now, your average kid usually does the former. They collect ECs, which is not that hard. And the high aspiration kid with a plan does the latter. They try to connect their ECs to one another and to part of a greater vision, which is not always as easy. And for your average kid, collecting ECs is just fine. That's what most kids do. They join a few clubs, they stick with some, they drop others, they, they just muddle along. And their parents typically don't get overly involved because it seems like their kids are busy, they're doing stuff. And the parents have enough stuff on their plate as well. And ironically, the whole reason that some kids join any of these clubs is because they think it will, quote, look good on their college application which in truth may or may not be true depending on how they present these. But that's what they've been told or what they've heard or what they assume. So that's what they do. They take the the default path. And oftentimes this path can lead to a rude awakening come junior or senior year when a student tries to create a coherent story about their time in high school. And lastly, if your child doesn't have a plan, and or they get a late start on certain ECs, it may make it difficult for them to gain leadership positions in these activities because they don't have any seniority. The students who've been in the club or the EC since freshman year, they will likely get first dibs on the presidency, for example, and your child might be out of luck. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say we have a student, a fictional student, let's call her Jane, who didn't get my memo, she didn't enroll in Preppel Academy, and as a freshman, she approached ECs like your average high schooler. By the time Jane's a senior, she has collected the following ECs. She was a math tutor over the summer. She was a member of student government on the spirit committee who organized the prom her senior year. She was the vice president of the Spanish club sophomore year, although she's no longer a member anymore. 
She tried the chess club for a year, but then dropped out. She's a member of the recycling club for three years, and she attended a day camp for five weeks over the summer, and she played volleyball sophomore year. Now, from a parent's point of view, it may appear that Jane's high school career has been super busy, and she's been very engaged in tons of stuff. She stays after school every day and always seems to be at a meeting or other some, some other type of event, and that might be true. She may have been legitimately busy with a lot of these ECs. However, when it's time for her to apply to college, and Jane begins to record these ECs on her application, do you sense a strong connection among these ECs? From her ECs, do you feel like you have a good sense about who Jane is, what she cares about, what she's passionate about, what she might want to study in college? Not really. The truth is she seems like she was all over the place. She didn't spend a lot of time in any one EC. She never held any leadership positions. The ECs were from a wide variety of fields, from tutoring to chess to volleyball. How were all of these things connected? Well, I can't tell. And to make matters worse, if you knew Jane personally, you would know that she's actually a huge history buff. She's a self-proclaimed expert in pre-industrial American history, if you can believe it. She could talk for hours about this topic, and she wants to be a history major in college. Wait, what? Oh, man, why didn't this interest show up in her ECs? How would I, as a reader, know about Jane's abiding love of history from her list of ECs? I wouldn't. Now, maybe she's smart enough to include something about this in her essays, but who knows? If she didn't, her application reader would have no idea about the real Jane, if you will. Now, let's do an experiment. Let's take a trip back in time and change history. What if Jane was a prep weller in freshman year, and she was taught by me in multiple lessons during freshman and sophomore year to actually think about what she really loved to do, and consider building her ECs around that. What might have happened? Well, here are a few hypothetical ideas. What if Jane started a history club at school? What if she watched the 32 TED Talks all about history in pre-industrial America? What if she wrote a children's book or produced a children's video all about pre-industrial America? What if she was a history tutor? What if she started a blog that talked all about her favorite aspects of pre-industrial America? What if she got a summer job at the American Museum of Natural History as a tour guide? What if she became a collector of old pre-industrial artifacts? What if she started her own podcast called The Good Old Days, all about our country's history pre-industrialization? What if she collected artwork from the era? What if she spent the summer traveling to the most important pre-industrial cities in America and taking photos? What if she read 200 of the most famous books about pre-industrial America? What if she contacted a history professor at a college on her wish list and performed some research for that professor's upcoming book? Now, I'm making all this up. I could go on and on, but I think you get the idea. Instead of doing what every other kid does for ECs, why not try out some ECs that are aligned with your interests? Now, if you were an application reader and you saw some of my made-up ECs on her application, would you have a different opinion of her? Would Jane have become a more compelling candidate? My guess is yes. So in summary, most families approach ECs too late, too haphazardly, 
too conventionally and with a collection mindset. Now, let's talk about how families should approach ECs, which is our third topic for today. Topic number three, as you might guess, families should think about what kinds of ECs to focus on in 9th and 10th grade, not 11th and 12th. This should be abundantly clear by now. If your child waits until 11th or 12th grade, it's hard to build momentum. It's hard to show sustained effort. It's hard to show a pattern of interest. Ideally, your child should brainstorm about what they like to do, what classes they like the most, what teachers they like the most, and what they might want to major in down the road. Now, I know you might be thinking, but, 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 my son or daughter hasn't the foggiest idea what they want to do in high school or college, let alone their lives. I'm with you. Fair enough. I've got four sons myself. Not every child will have a clear direction or a vision for their future in ninth or 10th grade. I get it. In my experience, however, the percentage of students who actually have a vision, even if it's a little fuzzy and can articulate it, is pretty significant. It's probably over 50%. But that's maybe because the students and families that I work with are often the more motivated type. And my pushback on the, my child has no idea what they want to do excuse is that, how do you know? When's the last time you asked? Have you listened? Now, I know it's hard to nail down a teenager on anything these days, especially boys. I've got four boys and man, it's a, it's a trial. But if your child is clueless, think to yourself, have I made an effort to help them find some clarity? Inside Preppel Academy, I spend several lessons asking your child to brainstorm and write down all the things they love to do, shows they like to watch, favorite classes, websites, online personalities, YouTube channels, you name it. Have them write it down. Then take a step back and start looking for themes or a clustering of interests. Is it sports? Is it art? Is it technology? Is it humanitarian aid? Is it saving the turtles? Now, it might not be as specific as pre-industrial American history, but you may find something to work with, and that's what you're looking for. And remember, this will be the exact exercise your child will go through when they are trying to figure out what type of summer job to get, what to major in, where to work after college, how to get that internship. So why not take a test run now? This is a skill that they should learn. And for the students that are typically attracted to my program, many already have pretty strong opinions on what they want to do with their lives. They're high achievers, they have high aspirations, and they at least like considering or thinking about these types of things. As a last resort, if your child is a complete blank slate and won't give you anything to work with, and by the way, if this is the case, don't feel bad. You are not alone. I have a couple blank slates myself. Here's a strategy. Ask them if they had to make a choice between studying STEM or the humanities, which would it be? STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math, and humanities is things like psychology and social uh, studies and philosophy and history. This is a very broad question and something they, they should probably be able to answer, STEM or humanities. If you wanted to phrase it a different way because they're being stubborn, ask this question. Which do they like more, numbers or words? They definitely should be able to answer that. Even a distinction as general as STEM versus humanities, numbers versus words, might give them a decision, or a direction at least, on the types of ECs to pursue. 
STEM kids would likely gravitate toward things like robotics and physics club and mathletes and engineering. Humanities kids, on the other hand, they may, may be more inclined to a history club or a psychology club or great books, or maybe they want to create their own book club. So in summary, families should approach the ECs early, ninth and 10th grade, with a long-term perspective and a strategic mindset that tries to align the ECs with budding interests. Topic number four, how important are ECs in the admissions process anyway? There is no definitive source that shows exactly how much weight, if you will, each college puts on extracurricular activities. And of course, each college can decide on their own how much weight to assign to ECs. But most would probably agree that it's on the order of 35 to 45%. So it's pretty significant. What's also important to note is the order in which most schools evaluate admissions factors. Here's what I mean by that. Most schools will evaluate three factors before all others. We call these, or I call these, the big three. The big three are, number one, GPA, number two, rigor of coursework, and number three, standardized test scores. Okay. Now, once your child gets through the big three screen, I call it a screen because if your child doesn't have what it takes with these three measures, they're going to hit the screen. They're not going to go any further. So it wouldn't really matter what your child's ECs are like. In other words, if your child has a 3.7 GPA and a 1200 on the SAT and has taken a few AP classes, they will most likely not make it through the screen for the most competitive Ivy League schools. The numbers just aren't strong enough. So it wouldn't matter too much what their ECs look like. And yes, I'm generalizing. Technically, there aren't any low-end minimums for really any schools. But for the Ivy League, unless you're a supported or what we call a supported or a recruited athlete, these numbers wouldn't cut it. However, if they have the GPA and the rigor and the SAT score that allows them through the screen, they will move on to the next phase of evaluation, which is typically... Dun, da, da, extracurricular activities, ECs. At this point, ECs become very important. Why? Because from the college's point of view, everyone who makes it through the screen is, in their view, capable of doing the work. Now it's time to see what else each student brings to the table, what else they have to offer. Hello, ECs. ECs are what help children differentiate themselves from the other candidates. The GPA, the rigor, the ACT score, they're past that all now. And if the ECs are weak or unconnected or misaligned, that gives the admissions reader an easy out and they will pass on your child. Done. And by the way, this process takes about 11 or 12 minutes. So at this point, the admissions reader is looking for specific kinds of students to fill out their class. They have specific needs. Some people call them institutional needs. They need certain people to fill certain spots. If your ECs make you appear uninteresting, unfocused, and otherwise generic, you have very little chance of capturing their attention or filling one of their spots because they don't even know where they would put you. Let me make this point a little more clear. There are thousands and thousands of applicants who make it through the screen. Lots of students have high GPAs. Lots of students take AP and weighted classes. Woo! -hoo! 
lots of students crush the SAT or the ACT. These applications are all over the place. They're not special in the eyes of a college, yet the ECs are what can help your child cut through this noise. In fact, when admissions officers talk about certain students who they like and are advocating for in committee, as we say, they often refer to the student not by name, but by their most significant EC. For example, they might refer to a girl named Sally as the first female Eagle Scout. Or they might refer to somebody else as, oh, that's the cowboy engineer, or that's the space gal, or that's the internet entrepreneur, or that's the Indiana Jones archaeologist guy, right? Or, yeah, that's the computer artist gal. For example, if Jane, the gal that I talked about earlier, this fictitious student who loved pre-industrial American history, if she had a list of ECs that actually matched her passion, now I mentioned a bunch of hypothetical ECs that probably would have done the trick, I could easily see the admissions officer referring to Jane as the female history expert while in committee female history expert would become her nickname. It would be the thing that defined her and gave her a place in the minds of the selection committee. Now, let me be clear. Just because you get a nickname doesn't mean you're in. But it does mean that if the school happens to be looking for more females to fill the history department, who do you think is going to get the call? The female history expert or the generic girl who tutored kids, played volleyball for one year, and was in the recycling club? Take a guess. The best applications present a profile where there is alignment among several factors, grades, standardized test scores, extracurriculars, teacher recommendations, essays, major preferences. Yes, this is easier said than done. This is the ideal candidate. That's what Preppel Academy tries to teach each and every week, how to do this. And of course, it's what I do with my private students. If each of these factors is pointing in the same direction, it makes the admissions officer's job a lot easier. You don't want to make the admissions officer's job too hard. They don't have the time to do extra work, no matter how compelling you might be. You don't want them to have to connect the dots for you. You want to connect the dots for them. So it's easy for them to understand who you are, what you stand for, and exactly what role you would fill at the college. You want a nickname. That's when they will go to bat for you. And that's all you can ask for. That's all for today, friends. I hope you found this episode to be relevant, to be informative, maybe even a little thought-provoking. And of course, if you'd like me to teach your child and you more about topics like this and dozens of other important college admissions issues, enroll your child in Preppel Academy today. Remember, we don't even allow 11th and 12th graders in anymore if they're starting, if they're not starting in ninth and 10th grade, because it's too late. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe. It helps us out quite a bit. If you know someone who you think would find this information valuable, please share it with them. Sharing is the best way to grow this podcast, which in turn will give me the resources and the motivation to keep producing more episodes. Until next week, goodbye, good luck, and never stop preparing. This podcast is brought to you by PrepWell Academy. 
Prepple Academy is my one-of-a-kind online mentoring program that delivers to your ninth or 10th grader a short, highly relevant video from me every week, every Sunday, in fact, where I give them a heads up about what they should be thinking about to stay ahead of the game. To get these valuable lessons into your child's hands, please head over to prepwellacademy.com and enroll your child today.